Part 10 of Paul and Virginia. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paul and Virginia by Bernard and Pierre. Part 10 It would have remained to you, you may say, to have enjoyed a pleasure independent of fortune, that of protecting a loved being, who, in proportion to her own helplessness, had more attached herself to you. You may fancy that your pains and sufferings would have served to endear you to each other, and that your passion would have gathered strength from your mutual misfortunes. Undoubtedly virtuous love does find consolation even in such melancholy retrospects. But Virginia is no more. Yet those persons still live, whom, next to yourself, she held most dear, a mother and your own. Your inconsolable affliction is bringing them both to the grave. Place your happiness, as she did hers, in affording them succour. My son, benevolence is the happiness of the virtuous. There is no greater or more certain enjoyment on the earth. Schemes of pleasure, repose, luxuries, wealth and glory are not suited to man, weak, wandering and transitory as he is. See how rapidly one step towards the acquisition of fortune has precipitated us all to the lowest abyss of misery. You were opposed to it, it is true, but who would not have thought that Virginia's voyage would terminate in her happiness and your own? An invitation from a rich and aged relation, the advice of a wise governor, the approbation of the whole colony, and the well-advised authority of her confessor, decided the lot of Virginia. Thus do we run to our ruin, deceived even by the prudence of those who watch over us. It would be better, no doubt, not to believe them, nor even to listen to the voice or lean on the hopes of a deceitful world. But all men, those you see occupied in these plains, those who go abroad to seek their fortunes, and those in Europe who enjoy repose from the labours of others, are liable to reverses. Not one is secure from losing, at some period, all that he most values, greatness, wealth, wife, children, and friends. Most of these would have their sorrow increased by the remembrance of their own imprudence. But you have nothing with which you can reproach yourself. You have been faithful in your love. In the bloom of youth, by not departing from the dictates of nature, you evinced the wisdom of a sage. Your views were just, because they were pure, simple, and disinterested. You had, besides, on Virginia sacred claims which nothing could countervail. You have lost her. But it is neither your own imprudence, nor your avarice, nor your false wisdom which has occasioned this misfortune, but the will of God, who had employed the passions of others to snatch from you the object of your love. God, from whom you derive everything, who knows what is most fitting for you, and whose wisdom has not left you any cause for the repentance and despair which succeed the calamities that are brought upon us by ourselves. Vainly, in your misfortunes, do you say to yourself, I have not deserved them. Is it then the calamity of Virginia, her death and her present condition that you deplore? She has undergone the fate allotted to all to high birth, to beauty, and even to empires themselves. The life of man, 
with all his projects, may be compared to a tower, at whose summit is death. When your Virginia was born, she was condemned to die. Happily for herself, she is released from life before losing her mother, or yours, or you. Saved thus from undergoing pangs worse than those of death itself. Learn, then, my son, that death is a benefit to all men. It is the night of that restless day we call by the name of life. The diseases, the griefs, the vexations, and the fears, which perpetually embitter our life as long as we possess it, molest us no more in the sleep of death. If you inquire into the history of those men who appear to have been the happiest, you will find that they have bought their apparent felicity very dear. Public consideration, perhaps, by domestic evils, fortune, by the loss of health, the rare happiness of being loved by continual sacrifices, and often, at the expiration of a life devoted to the good of others, they see themselves surrounded only by false friends and ungrateful relations. But Virginia was happy to her very last moment, when with us she was happy in partaking of the gifts of nature, when far from us she found enjoyment in the practice of virtue, and even at the terrible moment in which we saw her perish, she still had cause for self-gratulation. For whether she cast her eyes on the assembled colony, made miserable by her expected loss, or on you, my son, who, with so much intrepidity, were endeavouring to save her, she must have seen how dear she was to all. Her mind was fortified against the future by the remembrance of her innocent life, and at that moment she received the reward which heaven reserves for virtue, a courage superior to danger. She met death with a serene countenance. My son, God gives all the trials of life to virtue, in order to show that virtue alone can support them, and even find in them happiness and glory. When he designs for it an illustrious reputation, he exhibits it on a wide theatre, and contending with death. Then does the courage of virtue shine forth as an example, and the misfortunes to which it has been exposed receive forever from posterity the tribute of their tears. This is the immortal monument reserved for virtue in a world where everything else passes away, and where the names, even of the greater number of kings themselves, are soon buried in eternal oblivion. Meanwhile Virginia still exists. My son, you see that everything changes on this earth, but that nothing is ever lost. No art of man can annihilate the smallest particle of matter. Can then that which has possessed reason, sensibility, affection, virtue and religion be supposed capable of destruction, when the very elements with which it is clothed are imperishable. Ah, however happy Virginia may have been with us, she is now much more so. There is a God, my son. It is unnecessary for me to prove it to you, for the voice of all nature loudly proclaims it. The wickedness of mankind leads them to deny the existence of a being whose justice they fear. But your mind is fully convinced of his existence, while his works are ever before your eyes. Do you then believe that he would leave Virginia without recompense? Do you think that the same power which enclosed her noble soul in a form so beautiful, so like an emanation from itself, 
could not have saved her from the waves. That he who has ordained the happiness of man here, by laws unknown to you, cannot prepare a still higher degree of felicity for Virginia by other laws, of which you are equally ignorant. Before we were born into this world, could we, do you imagine, even if we were capable of thinking at all, have formed any idea of our existence here? And now that we are in the middle of this gloomy and transitory life, can we foresee what is beyond the tomb, or in what manner we shall be emancipated from it? Does God, like man, need this little globe, the earth, as a theatre for the display of his intelligence and his goodness? And can he only dispose of human life in the territory of death? There is not in the entire ocean a single drop of water which is not peopled with living beings appertaining to man. And does there exist nothing for him in the heavens above his head? What? Is there no supreme intelligence, no divine goodness, except on this little spot where we are placed? In those innumerable glowing fires, in those infinite fields of light which surround them, and which neither storms nor darkness can extinguish, is there nothing but empty space and an eternal void? If we, weak and ignorant as we are, might dare to assign limits to that power from which we have received everything, we might possibly imagine that we were placed on the very confines of his empire, where life is perpetually struggling with death and innocence forever in danger from the power of tyranny. Somewhere, then, without doubt, there is another world, where virtue will receive its reward. Virginia is now happy. Ay, if from the abode of angels she could hold communication with you, she would tell you, as she did when she bade you her last adieus, O oh, Paul, life is but a scene of trial. I have been obedient to the laws of nature, love, and virtue. I crossed the seas to obey the will of my relations. I sacrificed wealth in order to keep my faith, and I preferred the loss of life to disobeying the dictates of modesty. Heaven found that I had fulfilled my duties, and has snatched me forever from all the miseries I might have endured myself, and all I might have felt for the miseries of others. I am placed far above the reach of all human evils, and you pity me. I am become pure and unchangeable as a particle of light, and you would recall me to the darkness of human life. O oh, Paul! O oh, my beloved friend! Recollect those days of happiness, when in the morning we felt the delightful sensations excited by the unfolding beauties of nature, when we seemed to rise with the sun to the peaks of those rocks, and then to spread with his rays over the bosom of the forests. We experienced a delight, the cause of which we could not comprehend. In the innocence of our desires, we wished to be all sight, to enjoy the rich colours of the early dawn, all smell, to taste a thousand perfumes at once, all hearing, to listen to the singing of our birds, and all heart, to be capable of gratitude for those mingled blessings. Now, at the source of the beauty whence flows all that is delightful upon earth, my soul intuitively sees, hears, touches, what before she could only be made sensible of through the medium of our weak organs. Ah, what language can describe those shores of eternal bliss which I inhabit for ever? All that infinite power and heavenly goodness could create to console the unhappy.
all that the friendship of numberless beings, exulting in the same felicity can impart, we enjoy in unmixed perfection. Support then the trial which is now allotted to you, that you may heighten the happiness of your Virginia by love which will know no termination, by a union which will be eternal. There I will calm your regrets, I will wipe away your tears. O oh, my beloved friend, my youthful husband, raise your thoughts towards the infinite to enable you to support the evils of a moment. My own emotion choked my utterance. Paul, looking at me steadfastly, cried, She is no more, she is no more and a long fainting fit succeeded these words of woe. When restored to himself, he said, Since death is good, and since Virginia is happy, I will die too, and be united to Virginia. Thus the motives of consolation I had offered only served to nourish his despair. I was in the situation of a man who attempts to save a friend sinking in the midst of a flood, and who obstinately refuses to swim, sorrow had completely overwhelmed his soul. Alas! The trials of early years prepare man for the afflictions of after-life. But Paul had never experienced any. I took him back to his own dwelling, where I found his mother and Madame de la Tour in a state of increased languor and exhaustion, but Margaret seemed to droop the most. Lively characters, upon whom petty troubles have but little effect, sink the soonest under great calamities. "'Oh, my good friend,' said Margaret, "'I thought last night I saw Virginia dressed in white, "'in the midst of groves and delicious gardens. "'She said to me, "'I enjoy the most perfect happiness.' "'And then, approaching Paul, with a smiling air, "'she bore him away with her. "'While I was struggling to retain my son, "'I felt that I myself too was quitting the earth, "'and that I followed with inexpressible delight.' I then wished to bid my friend farewell, when I saw that she was hastening after me accompanied by Mary and Domingo. But the strangest circumstance remains yet to be told. Madame de la Tour has this very night had a dream exactly like mine in every possible respect. My dear friend, I replied, nothing, I firmly believe, happens in this world without the permission of God. Future events, too, are sometimes revealed in dreams. Madame de la Tour then related to me her dream, which was exactly the same as Margaret's in every particular. And as I had never observed in either of these ladies any propensity to superstition, I was struck with the singular coincidence of their dreams. And I felt convinced that they would soon be realized. The belief that future events are sometimes revealed to us during sleep is one that is wisely diffused among the nations of the earth. The greatest men of antiquity have had faith in it, among whom may be mentioned Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Scipios, the two Catos, and Brutus, none of whom were weak-minded persons. Both the Old and the New Testament furnish us with numerous instances of dreams that come to pass. As for myself, I need only on this subject appeal to my experience— as I have more than once had good reason to believe that superior intelligences, who interest themselves in our welfare, communicate with us in these visions of the night. Things which surpass the light of human reason cannot be proved by arguments derived from that reason. But still, 
if the mind of man is an image of that of God, since man can make known his will to the ends of the earth by secret missives, may not the supreme intelligence which governs the universe employ similar means to attain a like end? One friend consoles another by a letter, which, after passing through many kingdoms and being in the hands of various individuals at enmity with each other, brings at last joy and hope to the breast of a single human being. May not in like manner the sovereign protector of innocence come in some secret way to the help of a virtuous soul which puts its trust in him alone? Has he occasion to employ visible means to effect his purpose in this, whose ways are hidden in all his ordinary works? Why should we doubt the evidence of dreams? For what is our life, occupied as it is with vain and fleeting imaginations, other than a prolonged vision of the night? Whatever may be thought of this in general, on the present occasion the dreams of my friends were soon realized. Paul expired two months after the death of his Virginia, whose name dwelt on his lips in his expiring moments. About a week after the death of her son, Margaret saw her last hour approach with that serenity which virtue only can feel. She bade Madame de la Tour a most tender farewell. In the certain hope, she said, of a delightful and eternal reunion. Death is the greatest of blessings to us, added she, and we ought to desire it. If life be a punishment, we should wish for its termination. If it be a trial, we should be thankful that it is short. The governor took care of Domingo and Mary, who were no longer able to labour, and who survived their mistresses but a short time. As for poor Fidel, he pined to death soon after he had lost his master. I afforded an asylum in my dwellings to Madame de la Tour, who bore up under her calamities with incredible elevation of mind. She had endeavoured to console Paul and Margaret till their last moments, as if she herself had no misfortunes of her own to bear. And they were not more. She used to talk to me every day of them as of beloved friends, who were still living near her. She survived them, however, by one month. Far from reproaching her aunt for the afflictions she had caused, her benign spirit prayed to God to pardon her, and to appease that remorse which we heard began to torment her, as soon as she had sent Virginia away with so much inhumanity. Conscience, that certain punishment of the guilty, visited with all its terrors the mind of this unnatural relation. So great was her torment, that life and death became equally insupportable to her. Sometimes she reproached herself with the untimely fate of her lovely niece, and with the death of her mother, which had immediately followed it. At other times she congratulated herself for having repulsed far from her two wretched creatures, who, she said, had both dishonoured their family by their grovelling inclinations. Sometimes, at the sight of the many miserable objects with which Paris abounds, she would fly into a rage and exclaim, Why are not these idle people sent off to the colonies? As for the notions of humanity, virtue and religion, adopted by all nations, she said, they were only the inventions of their rulers to serve political purposes. Then, flying all at once to the other extreme, she abandoned herself to superstitious terrors, which filled her with mortal fears. 
she would then give abundant alms to the wealthy ecclesiastics who governed her, beseeching them to appease the wrath of God by the sacrifice of her fortune. As if the offering to him of the wealth she had withheld from the miserable could please her heavenly father. In her imagination she often beheld fields of fire with burning mountains, wherein hideous spectres wandered about, loudly calling on her by name. She threw herself at her confessor's feet, imagining every description of agony and torture. For heaven, just heaven, always sends to the cruel the most frightful views of religion and a future state. Atheist thus, and fanatic in turn, holding both life and death in equal horror, she lived on for several years. But what completed the torments of her miserable existence was that very object to which she had sacrificed every natural affection. She was deeply annoyed at perceiving that her fortune must go, at her death, to relations whom she hated, and she determined to alienate as much of it as she could. They, however, taking advantage of her frequent attacks of low spirits, caused her to be secluded as a lunatic, and her affairs to be put into the hands of trustees. Her wealth thus completed her ruin, and, as the possession of it had hardened her own heart, so did its anticipation corrupt the hearts of those who coveted it from her. At length she died, and, to crown her misery, she retained enough reason at last to be sensible that she was plundered and despised by the very persons whose opinions had been her rule of conducting during her whole life. On the same spot, and at the foot of the same shrubs as his Virginia, was deposited the body of Paul, and round about them lie the remains of their tender mothers and their faithful servants. No marble marks the spot of their humble graves. No inscription records their virtues, but their memory is engraven upon the hearts of those whom they have befriended in indelible characters. Their spirits have no need of the pomp which they shunned during their life, but if they still take an interest in what passes upon earth, they no doubt love to wander beneath the roofs of these humble dwellings inhabited by industrious virtue, to console poverty discontented with its lot, to cherish in the hearts of lovers the sacred flame of fidelity, and to inspire a taste for the blessings of nature, a love of honest labour, and a dread of the allurements of the riches. The voice of the people, which is often silent with regard to the monuments raised to kings, has given to some parts of this island names which will immortalize the loss of Virginia. Near the Isle of Amber, in the midst of sandbanks, is a spot called the Pass of the Saint-Geran, from the name of the vessel which was there lost. The extremity of that point of land which you see yonder, three leagues off, half covered with water, and which the Saint-Geran could not double the night before the hurricane, is called the Cape of Misfortune. And before us, at the end of the valley, is the Bay of the Tomb, where Virginia was found buried in the sand. As if the waves had sought to restore her corpse to her family, that they might render it the last sad duties on those shores, where so many years of her innocent life had been passed. Joined thus in death, ye faithful lovers, who are so tenderly united, unfortunate mothers, 
beloved family, these woods which sheltered you with their foliage, these fountains which flowed for you, these hillsides upon which you reposed, still deplore your loss. No one has since presumed to cultivate that desolate spot of land, or to rebuild those humble cottages. Your goats are become wild, your orchards are destroyed, your birds are all fled, and nothing is heard but the cry of the sparrow-hawk as it skims in quest of prey around this rocky basin. As for myself, since I have ceased to behold you, I have felt friendless and alone, like a father bereft of his children, or a traveller who wanders by himself over the face of the earth. Ending with these words, the good old man retired, bathed in tears. And my own, too, had flowed more than once during this melancholy recital. End of Paul and Virginia by Bernard Andrew St. Pierre Recording by Alice Christophe